All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of, you guessed it, the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm your host, uh, Bryce Paul, but I am unfortunately not joined by my notorious companion, my best friend, Mr. Aaron Pizzamine Malone. He is off in some unnamed country, some faraway land traveling. Uh, God knows where he is, but Pizzamine, if you're out there and you hear me, uh, I miss you, buddy. But uh, today I have the distinct privilege, the distinct honor of uh, interviewing our latest guest here on the Crypto 101 podcast, a DeFi expert, a guy who lives and breathes crypto, uh, an OG, if you will, Neil Zumwald, who is the co-founder of Credmark. So Neil, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, man. Uh, Before we even uh, kick things off here with, with your background, or uh, with Credmark, I see you're wearing an Olympus hat. Um, <laughs> what, what does that mean? Uh, tickle me, uh, tickle me pink here. Olympus? Oh, you haven't heard of Olympus? <laughs> uh, Olympus is uh, is is a, a project in the DeFi 2.0 space that is offering excellent, excellent APRs, and they use that to secure a treasury um, along with their bond pro- products. Um, in order to essentially create the first decentralized reserve currency. And yeah. they are doing a pretty good job of it, if I do say so myself. They've got the marketing machine. They've got the brains behind it. They seems to be a, a great project. So, yeah, well, one of the, uh, the analysts that we had just hired, a guy by the name of Matt, uh, Matt said that, you know, I, I told him, I was like, hey, like, go research Ohm. I'm hearing lots of buzz about it. Uh, tell, you know, tell me what's good. And he came back, he goes, Bryce, I didn't sleep. And it was the first time since I, uh, uh, you know, basically he goes, the, the last time I like went through this sort of fervor was when I went through Polkadot. He goes, I, I couldn't sleep. I was in, infatuated and, you know, my whole mind was blown. He goes, and that hasn't happened in like two years. He goes, I went through, uh, the rabbit hole on Ohm and he goes, I'm, I'm totally red pilled. I think this is cool. So, you know, obviously not investment advice. I actually don't own any Ohm. Um, but you know, my, some, some of my affiliates might, who knows, but regardless, uh, Ohm is a, is a pretty interesting project, but I just saw your hat. So I had to comment on it. Um, <laughs> I get regardless- lots of compliments on this hat. That's for yeah, sure. It's pretty cool. Um, okay. Well, regardless, uh, Olympus Dow, now let's move on, Neil, who, who the heck are you, right? Give us a quick background, a quick one one on Neil Zumwald. Well, uh, I am an engineer turned founder. Uh, coming into the crypto space, all of my previous work was in uh, green energy and industrial automation, actually. So when I came into the crypto space in 2018, I immediately started di- digging deeper, deeper, deeper into the data side of things. So data and doing analysis of how the logic works and finding all the places where this could fail. That had been my job previously for nearly a decade. And so I just started applying those skills to the crypto space um, and looking at these sort of automated systems that you can never change. They're totally immutable bits of logic here and there. It sounded uh, not only terrifying, but also super exciting. So um, the first one I dug into was MakerDAO. And, uh, you know, at the time they had like $100,000 collateralized and they were doing the single single sided die. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I started digging into that and Credmark was born over the next, you know, three years really of 
me doing my own research, me looking at how do we how do we measure credit risk, you know, because that seemed like the big place where you've got these over collateralized loans. And as they become under collateralized, what happens? So I was digging into that for a long time and realized as the space became more and more complex and more and more of these protocols started emerging that the that you can't necessarily do apples to apples from TradFi, but you can use a lot of the existing knowledge and wisdom from that space to really dive into what are what are the smart things to do in the DeFi world because you know there's there's a there's a million ways that things become insolvent but but what is the average person who's just going to a website going to think about those things so that's how credmark was born and then earlier this year um we we really started taking off and um, now we've, we're, we've released some product and it's more than just, it's more than just me doing my own research for my own edification. So nice. Well, it, sounds, it. it sounds like it has, uh, evolved, uh, just in so far as, uh, DeFi has really evolved, really, mm-hmm. you know, we, we saw different iterations of it and now, you know, it's always, you know, the industry is not so clever enough to call it like DeFi and then DeFi 2.0. Like that's not that clever, but there is this new step, right? And I wish they would have called it something else. Uh, but here we are discussing DeFi 2.0. So uh, <laughs> Neil, what are the market differences? I mean, you've seen DeFi, like you said, from the inception, right? I, I like to call MakerDAO the grandfather uh, of DeFi mm-hmm. uh, 1.0. Like you said, it, it really did kick off. Um, this whole sort of like borrow lend facility um, mm-hmm. that 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 can be done on chain, but yeah, catch us up. What's DeFi 1.0, and where are we at now with DeFi 2.0? So DeFi 1.0 is really the um, DeFi that most of the most of the current blue chips I would define as DeFi 1.0, um, and those are mostly based on like synthetic assets. They're mostly based on um, borrowing and lending, like collateralization, securing crypto instruments with other crypto. Um, and really like there's not, a, and and really leaning into kind of that trustless side of things where, um, where you need to, you need to have more in your reserves than you do otherwise, because you, you can't trust anyone else on chain. DeFi 2.0, I think is a little bit more in the optimistic realm where you're, you've got things like Ohm that um, are saying that the, some of the value that they're generating is sort of ineffable on top of the existing sort of the, the existing like assets under management that you may have by some of these protocols. But I will say that the DeFi 2.0 space is actually not that well defined. <laughs> so I there, there's a bunch of things, there's a bunch of different protocols where I'm like, I don't, I wouldn't have thought of that as DeFi 2.0, but people are calling it DeFi 2.0 kind of if it came out this year, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, yes, it's, it's uh, DeFi that was born in the bull market. So it has this kind of market optimism about it um, that is these interest rates can keep going and they are, you know, locked tokens will stay locked and unlocked tokens will stay unlocked. And there's, they're not necessarily wrong, but it's certainly less, less about managing the risk than DeFi 1.0 was. Mm. So by and large, my research is on the DeFi 1.0 space. Um, 
because because it is more about solvency than um, the DeFi 2.0 spaces in general. Yeah, fascinating. Really fascinating. So so let's let's kind of stick on the 1.0 uh, era and, mm-hmm. and talk about um, basically in your opinion the big why, right? Like why does the DeFi industry really need these sort of risk metrics that Credmark is uh, generating? Yeah. Well, I think that the reason why is because crypto wants to grow and because the people who have been in crypto from its inception, those are the really risk tolerant users in general. So if you got into crypto early, 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 it means that you have a huge appetite for what's new and what, uh, what the shiny thing in crypto is, but that doesn't necessarily describe most people or most institutions that we're going to need buy-in um, from almost everybody in order to really redefine the financial system. And so you need you need to have like a different approach than sort of the optimism I was just talking about um, in order to really get buy-in from this next kind of class of uh, in both the retail investors and the institutional investors who might be more risk averse, but who want to participate and have something to add to the ecosystem. What are kind of uh, the main risks? I mean, I, I know we, we've talked about, you know, under collateralization and kind of like insolvency and bank runs and stuff. What are some of the other things that you kind of look at in the DeFi ecosystem and say, yeah, that's a risk. That's something we want to monitor. That's something that, you know, lenders will care about and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so we break it up into three main categories um, that that we're really interested in specifically, and that is um, the market risk. So that's just the price of the underlying assets. They go up, they go down. We've seen and, it. And the times. more volatility this sort of thing has, the the higher the risk score. You would say, in general, yes. And so we measure that with something called value at risk, which is we take we look back at the last three hundred sixty five days break it into 10-day chunks, and then say, what was the worst 10-day chunk of the past year? And we say, that. then we say, what's the worst 1% chance of that thing happening again? And that's our value at risk. So with our value at risk score, what we, we're, we're hoping to measure the market risk by saying, this happens 1% of every 10-day chunk so you need to be prepared for it. You know, it's not like this doesn't ever happen. So we need to look at what sort of the downstream effects are when we get these 1% days. And we've seen, you know, we've seen plenty of them. Uh, <laughs> it seems like the 1% days are just freaking normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> supposedly they happen 3.6 times a year, but, you know, <laughs> um, so we, that's, that's our measure for market risk. And then we're also looking at liquidity risk, which is a little more um, specific in the crypto space than it is in the traditional space. Um, and what liquidity risk means is if I have some token, can I convert it into the token I want to convert it into? And that can be a number of different things. It could either mean that the liquidity doesn't exist on the market. It can mean that the liquidity doesn't exist in the pools, or it can mean that like uh, you don't have the reserves in some DeFi protocol in order to actually convert your wrapped, you know, USDC into back into USDC so you can spend it. 
Um, so that's what we call liquidity risk. And there's a, in the DeFi space, there's a bunch of different ways that you can become essentially illiquid. Rug pulled. Um, yeah, rug, I, rug pull is a big one, right? Where it's like, oh, I pulled the, the reserves out of a pool and you're stuck with the wrapped version of those reserves or some sort of stake in the pool that is now essentially useless. And it's not that it has, it's not that the price went down. It's just that you can't convert it back into what a more useful asset. Um, then the third type of risks that we're looking at are what we're calling operational risk. And that's where it gets really interesting in crypto because that's where you find things like uh, exploits, where you've got flash loan exploits or you've got reentrancy exploits and all the stuff that the auditors are looking for um, but can't necessarily find. Uh, so those are those those are some of the more interesting sort of crypto native risks that we're looking at. And in order to find, figure stuff like that out, we say, hey, can somebody manipulate the price of this asset? What would it take? And so um, when we're looking at it, we're saying, how distributed is, are the oracles? Um, we mm. just saw like a few days ago, Coinbase told me I had two point five billion dollars in my in my right. In my, the uh, coin market cap uh, API got. Bonk, exactly. So imagine if I had taken out a huge loan against those assets in that in that moment, and that was the only oracle you were using. Mm. So that it may seem, you know, it's funny, and but it can have like real downstream consequences if you haven't um, really verified all the data that is on your input. So we kind of take a look at those verification mechanisms, and we take a look at um, some of your like very typical. When when I have some asset, is it are are the, all the other assets on a protocol sort of um, beholden to the risk of that one thing? And so that's what happened in the cream hack, where YUSDC the price of that got hacked, and every other asset on cream finance was essentially exposed to the risk of that one asset uh, being hacked. And so, you know, that's maybe getting into the weeds a little bit, but uh, but it's it, I I hope that is. Uh, it shows that there's like a bunch of new types of risks in crypto that are not only terrifying, but really exciting. And yeah, and, um, and actually it was funny, the, the gentleman who I recorded an interview with uh, earlier this morning, right before this, um, a guy by the name of Adam Back. And Adam was talking to me about uh, how there had been $7.7 billion dollars of money that was basically lost on Ethereum or hacked to an to a sense through it, whether it was a rug pool or through um, you know one of these associated risks that you were just talking about, and so um, to quantify, right? You're like, oh wow, like you know somebody who might be listening at home thinking, oh like that's just a small subsec, you know, there's not that much at risk. Well, seven point seven billion dollars mm-hmm. just in 2021 that was affected. You know, through like like he said, like uh, like Neil said, through just these different um, you know, exploits, like on the cream finance hack, or you know, some of these different. Th- that's a lot of that's a lot of money that's at risk, um, and so it's a big market that you're really uh, addressing here. I would say, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's interesting too because uh, most of the time when you know when one of the media outlets is reporting when they were reporting about the the cream finance hack. They were saying that it was uh, something like a hundred million dollars got hacked, some, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but Cream had like seventeen billion TVL, but suddenly there wasn't enough 
liquidity in the reserves for anyone to pull out that value that was already locked. So that the downstream effect of $100 million is that, you know, it was 170 times as much money that had that had suddenly become illiquid Hmm. because of this small hack. So when people talk about the hacks, I don't think they're necessarily capturing how how much of an effect that can have downstream. Yeah, totally. And that's yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I was just saying it's just there, there's so much to be monitoring in, you know, Ethereum and of course Solana and Luna. And there's just so many, you know, Bitcoin, there's so many different platforms here. Um, it's just, you know, how do you as a founder, like, you know, bite off your part of the industry? You know, what, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, is, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's finding, finding market fit is always like a big, um, a big challenge, especially when you have such a fragmented industry. And I think that's what you're getting at is that like the fragmentation of this means that you can't have expertise in everything. And when we're establishing ourselves um, in our set of expertise, we're really looking for one of the, one of the nice features about being an analytics firm with risk is that risk takes a lot of history in order to monitor, Mm. right? Um, So you really, so it actually is interesting that it kind of slows down the analysis that we can do and we can, we're, we're sort of a follow feature rather than like a leading feature of these DeFi platforms. So where other DeFi protocols are sort of like trying to find their spot on one of the newer chains that may not have that may not be fully featured and they can you know find market fit with by applying that feature to a new L1 or a new L2 we can sort of watch the growth of each of these different uh token ecosystems and say well where's the defi happening where where are where are the biggest um where can we have the biggest impact hmm. um and luckily that information is pretty re- readily available f- for us and uh, so right now we're we're only monitoring the ETH chain and um, we're looking at the L2s and kind of waiting for just enough DeFi to be happening on the L2s that we can get some history on it. Um, but largely most of those launched this year. So um, yeah. we really, there's not a whole lot you can do before you have a year's worth of data. Uh, so we're looking at the, the ETH data and we think that many of these L2s will follow kind of the same evolution that was available on ETH, but it might be a little accelerated because there's more people who know about DeFi now and who are users. Um, so we expect it to be faster than the, the ETH evolution of DeFi, but, um, largely mirror it. Wow. Fascinating. And so is the vision for Credmark almost like in the same way that, um, you know, Twitter has a blue check mark next to a person. They're like, all right, you're verified. Is the cred mark just like, hey, this, you know, your address, you know, 0x12345678, um, you've got an 800 cred mark. And so, you, you know, you're going to get a lower rate. And then, <laughs> you know, this guy, 0x866, uh, you know, he's got a 200 cred mark. So he's, you know, he's getting a 16% rate. So that's, that's where our research definitely started. Um, we have since kind of moved away from that because we think that there's actually more that we can do. We can have a bigger impact if we are uh, exposing sort of like the underlying factors to the DeFi platforms themselves and to the money managers, where we can say, as the DeFi Lego stack starts to build up, these top level um, DeFi 
uh, uh, protocols that are built on top of this this foundational piece, um, they need to know as much as they can about the foundational piece uh, in order to keep keep the tower from falling over, essentially. And so that's really been how we've shifted our shifted our focus uh, to 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 a more analytical, more quantitative output for what yeah. we're doing, rather than rather than like the 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 check mark type mm-hmm. type thing. So after peaking at sixty eight thousand dollars in mid November, Bitcoin has dropped by roughly forty percent. So no one said flying the D five flag was going to be easy. But what if I told you that your portfolio might be overweight in Bitcoin? Uh, In fact, you might also want to consider diversifying into other alternative assets, perhaps like blue chip art. In some cases, actually, paintings have seen appreciation similar to crypto over the long term. For instance, a Picasso painting recently sold for $103 million dollars. Uh, at an auction. And that's a 1400% increase from its original price at auction. And and now there's a new platform that lets you invest in paintings like that uh, without needing to be a gazillionaire. Uh, And over 310,000 investors have signed up. And just the other day, they had a $7.4 million Banksy painting that sold out in under three hours. Now I've partnered with this platform and, and got you all priority access to their newest paintings. And so all you got to do is log on to masterworks.io slash crypto 101. Again, that's masterworks.io slash crypto 101. Uh, again, masterworks.io slash crypto 101. And you can check out all the uh, the good stuff they got on their platform. So uh, I want you guys as well to see the important disclosures that are at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And we're also going to link to those in the show notes. You mentioned a, a great analogy that I kind of want you to unpack here is this idea of like DeFi as money Legos. Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of our listeners at home might be like, wait, what Legos? Like those little things I buy for my, my, my kids over Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. What does that have to do with DeFi? But maybe you could unpack that for us. Yeah, totally. Um, so DeFi Legos uh, is a concept that, you know, you have these DeFi protocols that that have some sort of output that is composable. So if I am to put my USDC into Aave, for example, I'm going to get back a USDC. So Aave USDC. Now I can take that Aave USDC and I can put that into a curve vault or a curve position. And then I get back my LP tokens that represent my AUSDC that I am supplying to curve. Now I can take those tokens and then put those in a yearn vault to get a APY on it. And then the yearn vault, you know, kind of reinvests the curve tokens that I'm getting as uh, as as reward. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply back into the whole thing. And so we like to use that as our example of what a DeFi Lego stack would be, where there, you've got urine on top, curve in the middle, Ave, and then underneath is USDC. So when you are investing in a urine vault, you're inheriting the risks of everything that's below you on the Lego stack. And they just stack up nicely, just you know, visually how, how, uh, how a Lego would work where you really can't put that second piece on unless that first piece is firmly in place. Um, and so we, we, part of, part of the analysis that we do do is to say, uh, how do these risks affect each other as you build these Lego, as you, as you get higher and higher up the stack. Um, so your risk gets higher because you're inheriting more and more risk from below but the rewards also get higher because you know there's more benefit to having these kinds of assets locked up for longer periods of time and we call that stickiness so <laughs> would, would you is it safe to say that you would call yourselves like white hat sorry white hat hackers where like you you basically are like you know you have all this data and then boom you, your your system kind of gives you an alert and would you then go to like, you know, cream finance before the hack and be like, hey, we found this risk, like you should address it. Or is it more of like a retrospective sort of, uh, you know, is the system supposed to be preventative or retrospective, I guess? It is supposed to be. So so this this gets into a really big question that we have internally. Um, I don't think I would call us white hat hackers because we're not, we're not, uh, we're not, we're, we're trying to get the data layer really well set up. But I, I do think that it's, it's, it's really interesting, this debate that we've had internally between basically there's three things that you need in order to manage your risk. You need data, you need analysis, and then thirdly, you need the tooling to, do, to, to act on it, right? And we've decided that we can't, we can't quite tackle all three because we're a startup. You, know, you have to kind of pick, pick what you're good at. So in that respect, we haven't really gotten to the tooling section uh, because we think that there's a lot to be pulled from the data and the analysis side of things. Um, and so we have actually taken the strategy of partnering with people who are building the tooling, and then we can inform them as to what, what the kind of underlying state of risk is underneath that tooling. So we've been working with a company called CoinShift that is sort of building DAO treasury tools. 
Um, so these DAOs have raised a bunch of money and they've got these huge treasuries and they need to know where to put that in order to get some return on it, but they don't want to put their entire treasury at risk. Um, so they need to, they need to kind of know, okay, if I'm going to invest in this deep or if I'm going to lock up my treasury in this DeFi protocol, sort of what are the ways that that can fail? And do I have the data that I need to get an early warning? Fascinating. And, and, you know, I think this is a big part of DeFi 2.0 is like this protocol controlled value or, you know, protocol owned liquidity. They're kind of calling it a few different things, but I love this concept of, you know, all these just different people around the world who own the same token, right? They could come to a, a voting forum and they could vote on basically how the treasury is spent. You know, it's in the, in the same way, it's like, you know, being able to vote on how our taxes are spent or how our government invests money. You know, it's happening on these small localized scales. Do you really view like kind of the future, you know, if you were to look, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out, whatever, like, do you ever like envision um, sort of this world where it's like predominantly little digital nation states, like as opposed to like now all these, you know, huge, you know, 200 nations that kind of rule the world. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yes. Right. I think that is the most, that is the most exciting thing about the DAO structure. That is the most exciting thing about DeFi. Um, I think that I think that we have a little bit of expansion and then contraction to do before we really figure out the best way to do these types of things. But the experimentation around these DAO structures is fascinating. And it's been very fun to kind of dip our toes in and like sort of stake our claim being sort of, we're we're sort of a web 2.0 company, right? Because we're like, we're taking web three data and in order to do the transformations that we have to do, you have to do that on traditional cloud computing totally. for now, right? Like, and so, and so we're looking ahead at the future and saying, where, where can people contribute to that, to that structure and without it getting into, oh, we're going to hold an asset that represents part of the treasury. We're doing like a little bit of that. We are doing protocol-owned liquidity. Credmark owns all of its own liquidity. We manage all of our own liquidity positions. We manage our treasury and we have people vote on how we manage our treasury. Um, we're, we're very public about it. So, But like, is it going to get to the nation state kind of level? I think that's not actually super hard. If you look at, if you look at like, at, at like the, the, the size of some of these treasuries. Yeah. It, they're, they're operating as if they are a small nation. And, um, and I think that's, that's not going to go away where, where our geographic boundaries were before, I think we're going to see our economic boundaries being, um, being entirely digital geographies yeah. instead of instead of being like sea to shining sea you know what i mean <laughs> totally no i i think especially like you know i've always thought like okay like the largest nation in the world like that's that's facebook like they got yeah, you know two right? and a half billion users all around the world and now of course they've changed their name to metaverse right and you know every single metaverse token just went bonkers after that but it really does show us like this evolution of, of of humanity from from the physical to the digital right every you know tech company's been talking about the digital revolution since you know early 2000s and it's like it's just you know it's finally happening and now it's becoming you know very visceral um and 
Yeah. It's just like what you said, like, you know, digital geographies as opposed to like these physical geographies. I, I think that's exactly where we're headed. Yeah. I've always thought that one of the scariest things in the world would be if Amazon started a military. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just like, Jeff I'm just like, like oh listening. My God. don't get any ideas. Yeah. Don't do not listen to this, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's always listening. That's, that's he's the whole, that's listening. The whole thing. I'm sure he is. Yeah. yeah. We don't get away, but like they own all the, the entire distribution they have. Yeah. It's terrifying. They have everything that they need to take over the whole world. And that's that the, like the, the dystopian version of that is the like corporate nation state. And I think the utopian version of that is sort of this, uh, this user owned nation state. Mm. I think that's going to be a huge conflict coming up. Um, And I think that, I think that we we're already seeing people. um, I mean, I, th- I think I'm not super up to date on the whole controversy, but I think there was something where Jack tweeted out that VC web three is just owned by the VCs or something. Yeah. Along said something those like lines. That. It's like something very bearish on web three. Uh, and, you know, I think that there are cases where that's true, where the VCs have, have an outsized control, but, um, but it's all about us finding the places where you can reward distribution rather than rewarding consolidation. And if that is going to happen, if that can happen, then we can see these kinds of like more equitable structures and potentially even the, the whole like Dow nation state um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that you can, you can say, Hey, I want my taxes quote unquote to go towards this piece of infrastructure, um, which I don't get to vote on my own roads, you know? Well, I kind yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, I really do feel like one of the the driving factors with with like DAOs and why there's just such a huge uptake and like the participation numbers are just you know crazy. I think a lot of people just don't really feel represented by their representatives, right? You know, mm-hmm. whether it's the people that you see in Congress or the people that are, you know, I think you know people do feel more represented by their local authorities probably than they do their like federal and like larger authorities. And I think that's just a function of like proximity, right? Like people trust (laughs) things and operate well within, um, you know, sort of frameworks that are like close to them. And I think that's the one thing that's really driving a lot of like, you know, DeFi and and DAOs is just because it does like localize things. And like, there's more power in in local communities than there are, you know, broad communities in, in these these large overarching you know, governments have kind of become too big to fail, if you will. But, you know, that's, you know, I don't want to call for the end of like the, you know, the, the countries or end of the world or anything like that would be pretty bad. Like it's probably a long tail thing, but I think that is sort of the long-term trend is like yeah. kind of like, you know, winding down big government and, and doing things more locally. And it starts with the economy and, you know, crypto is, you know, decentralized local economies. But anyhow, I'm getting yeah. far too philosophical here. <laughs> I, I want to, I want to jump in for just a little, just to do yeah, just one, one more iota here and say that when you say proximity, you know, I think, I think more access, right. Cause I may be on the other side of the world from, my DAO representative, if that becomes a thing, but but in general, you have access to these people pretty easily. Mm. You know, if you're in the Discord and you're part of a, a contributing member of the DAO, like most people have pretty good access to the leadership at these DAOs, even though their um, their treasuries are worth billions. 
like it's it's kind of it's kind of unprecedented and uh, i think it's super exciting so now i kind of have just switching gears um just i'm, I'm kind of curious i like asking people this what what surprises have you uncovered um you know in your in your journey and you're trawling through massive troves of data you know What's been the most surprising discovery? Have there been any, maybe a general trend of sort of discoveries that you've found? So the, the, I think the most interesting, uh, the, the most interesting thing I've learned is that even in the digital space, you do get sort of, there's, there is still like some celebrity culture. Um, even in the crypto space, uh, watching that kind of emerge uh, as as it's like a new class of celebrity, but it still exists where you get these like super devs. And that that has been really interesting to see that kind of reinvent itself in the DAO space. Mm. And then, yeah, as far I, as, you know, Andre Kronji, yep. Anatoly Yakovenko, Vitalik Buterin, Sam Bankman Fried, like there's all these guys that are just like, you'd you know, people fanboy over them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bantag, Hayden, yep. you know, like all of, all of those guys. And like, we can just list them off. Liquidity the, wizard. Yeah. The yeah, Zeus. Exactly. Like, you know, we're, I think we're just nerds. <laughs> Maybe either it's that, or we have kind of reinvented celebrity, which I mean, reinventing the dev celebrity is like, I guess you kind of had Bill Gates in the eighties, but like, there's not, there's not a lot of examples. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so I think that that's been a really surprising thing that I've seen. Um, and then as far as like the rabbit holes that my research has taken us down, one of the most interesting things is to um, is is to ask people, when I meet money managers, one of the first things that I ask them, um, and this could be like hedge funds, VCs, DeFi platforms, just like anyone who's like kind of managing money, um, you you kind of ask you ask what is the what is the risk free rate in, in DeFi, and the it's amazing how many people consider like the DeFi the lowest level of the DeFi Legos to be a risk free rate, and they there's there's sort of like an uh, a an overwhelming trust in code where people think that there's literally no way that they can lose their Aave or Compound USDC, um, which is not technically true. <laughs> but I mean, they do a good job of risk management, but um, it's not it's not risk-free in the way that, um, you know, you have, I mean, I guess in terms of governments, it's not technically risk-free either, but in the way that treasury bonds are sort of like backed up by the social like like a social contract that is so large that it can't be broken right that doesn't necessarily exist in defi and certainly um when you compare it to traditional fine traditional finance and some of the financial tools that exist there um they're they're massively more risky um than than a bunch of traditional financial tools that's not to say that they're not absolutely awesome because the you know the rewards are higher than in traditional finance, but it's not the risk-free rate. And then the other thing that people say is just growth on Bitcoin. <laughs> they, they think that there's like an, there, there's a, a never-ending growth on Bitcoin. And, um, you know, it's that's always a surprising thing to hear from, from people who are managing huge sums of money. Yeah. Wow. Trippy, trippy. And, yeah. you know, kind of switching gears actually to 
Bitcoin. I know we spent most of the time talking about Ethereum and Web3. That's where you spend most of your time. But I want to harken back to uh, something I learned about you uh, in the very introduction was that you said you had a focus on green energy and uh, Mm -hmm. renewables and sort of things like that. And there's this big discussion now around Bitcoin's, uh, you know, mining being quite energy intensive and all that kind of stuff. But then there's a lot of really smart Bitcoiners that are like, you know, starting to talk about uh, gas flaring and, you know, being able to recapture sort of this uh, this excess gas um, that would typically get flared out and you know hurt the environment. Whereas Bitcoiners can come in, they can take up that excess energy and they could be mining Bitcoin with it. But do you have any sort of like opinions on uh, you know Bitcoin's mining process and uh, maybe anything around like the gas flaring stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, it when when you have any what will be true about Bitcoin is really true of any proof of works network in terms of the energy consumed. Um, I the in terms of the gas flaring, I don't have a I haven't done my research on that side of things. So I don't I don't know for sure. But mm-hmm. one of the more interesting things about how the grid works is that you need to send energy somewhere, right? It has to be consumed at the time of generation or else it's it's essentially wasted. Um, because our storage mm-hmm. mechanisms are really, really really not very sophisticated. So this is why they're calling Bitcoin a money battery, right? Yes. Yes. And so there's, there's like, there's this idea that, um, that if you can generate value while there is uh, too much energy, you can use that value when there's not enough. Right. Mm -hmm. So like it's, it's, it's a little bit of a roundabout way to do it, but you can essentially store value during during times of excess because it has to go somewhere uh or else it's just or else you shouldn't be generating it um and that's something called over voltage on the grid where if you have too much energy on the grid that's a really bad thing so people will ramp down their energy production during times when they think that the energy consumption is going to be low and so those things are in in on mass those things are pretty predictable but um but making that even more predictable by having sort of a consistent energy consumption mechanism in place that can ramp up and down more quickly than say a hydroelectric dam can ramp mm-hmm. up and down could actually be a, a stabilizing force on the grid. Uh, now, do I think that's a little optimistic? I do, <laughs> <laughs> but it just goes to show that like that if there's, if there's value there in ingenuity will follow um, and, and I think that th- with the amount of value that bit, that Bitcoin has created for, for the tech in this, for just technology in general, I think that, yeah, I can, I can easily imagine the Bitcoin money space giving something back by helping make the energy grid as efficient as Bitcoin in general has been at storing value. Wow. I love it. That, that was very well said. And I uh, highly encourage everybody to, to, to go rewind that and listen to that again. Uh, I, know, <laughs> I know I will, but that's, that's super interesting stuff. And, you know, it's just crazy, like, because you know, I don't even want to go here, but I think we should. Like the price of energy right now is just soaring through the roof, right? I mean, obviously inflation is here and that's kind of a function of a, a whole host of things, the money printing, the supply chain bottleneck and stuff. But what we're seeing actually in Europe is like an energy crisis, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's kind of 
high level, you know, I don't know, you know, this was not in the outline. I didn't think we were going to go here, but high level, like what's happening like globally, like, are we in an energy crisis sort of mode? I mean, if it's kind of just in Europe, maybe it's trickling over to Asia. What's, what's kind of going on here? Listen, I, I have, I have been out of the game now for, for long enough that I can't <laughs> necessarily speak to it. Um, and as far, as far as like the most recent market movements on energy, I am, I am not aware of what, what is causing that? Unfortunately, I would love to go there with you, but I just don't know enough right now. All right, fair enough, fair enough. I tried to tried to sneak one in on you, but uh, <laughs> regardless, Neil. I mean, this this has been a fantastic conversation. What you know, last last question for you. What is a question that I didn't ask? Right that 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 probably should have been asked. Hmm. Credmark is an isn't an interesting position because we are not. Our protocol exists to support as a secondary product instead of the primary product of what we're building, Mm. where our protocol that we're building out is just to get access and incentivize the creation of data models because because our data analytics are all based on these risk primitives, which are data models, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As you can imagine, there's a lot of computing power and a lot of data storage that goes into that. And that's all happening off-chain. And for the foreseeable future, as in the next two to three years, I don't see the technology evolving to the point where we can actually do much of that work, that computing work on chain. So we need to figure out how to make this more Web3 native. And in order to do that, what we've done is we've said, okay, we're going to use the knowledge of our community and have them come in and build models and we can incentivize those people and sort of automate the incentives around the models. So we're using Web3 as the layer of incentivization to create something more scalable on the data side. And so the data access, the data submission, and the data validation are all actually happening off-chain, but all of the accounting for that and all of the incentivization for that can happen on chain so that it's totally transparent. And we think that this is like a totally new model for anyone who's essentially selling data in order to share those revenues and to incentivize the people who are making the data accessible in the first place. And you mentioned that you're a web, you know, you, you kind of said it off the cuff, but you know, kind of like a web 2.0 company working with, you know, web three data sets. Are there other sort of companies that you see that are kind of coming about that are like that. You know, I saw, for instance, Stripe is, you know, hired like a head of crypto and they're going to start figuring out how they could integrate it. Do you see this as like kind of a big trend? Um, yeah, I really, really do. And so I think that one of the unique things about Credmarks is that we're trying something new with how we structure it. And I th- and I genuinely think that a bunch of people are going to follow when they see the stuff that we're coming out with. When they Thanks. understand, oh, you can actually like manage this whole, the, the big complicated thing in a data company is access, right? Who has access to the data? Mm-hmm. How do you monetize that? And how do you send that where it needs to be? And how do you like collectively own the, how do you collectively own a data set? So far, I haven't seen anyone do that yet. So Dune Analytics is pretty close in the sense that they have community generated dashboards. Nansen just did a big raise and they've sort of hinted that there's like a social element coming out, but I, I don't know what that is. So um, that could be more web three focused, but uh, as of right now, I don't, I don't see a lot of the data and even more so risk data mm-hmm. being uh, used in that way. 
Well, Neil, I, I truly, really enjoyed uh, this conversation and learning all about Credmark and uh, your journey here. Uh, thanks for coming on to the Crypto 101 podcast. And I really do hope that we could have you join us again sometime in the future, uh, whenever the next product launches or something exciting happens. Maybe there's a, a, a crazy thing that happens in the markets. We need your take on it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you back, Neil. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know if there's a there's a hot new exploit that, you know, is on its way or whatever. Hell yeah. All right. Well, until next time and, and everybody at home listening, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you again soon. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.